Radio. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible, and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited, adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. Alright, so before we get going, I do have to acknowledge a couple sources, and again, a good book called Historic Ghosts and Ghost Hunters by Henry Addington Bruce, published in 1908. We also have The History of Yesteryear. We have E. Winchester Stevens' book titled The Watsika Wonder, and we also have several just random articles in psychological journals. That includes the early 1900s late 1800s as well because I wanted to get information more from the time period as of today because back then they had the advantage of actually interviewing surviving witnesses, members of the family, etc, etc. So again, this is one of those episodes that you're going to have to pay attention to because there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of reference cases, a lot of stuff like that. So I have no doubt you guys can keep up with me, but I still had to say it. With all that behind us, I don't think I have any new Patreon supporters. I'll probably read some reviews at the end of this. And with all that being said, welcome to Mysterious Circumstances. I am Justin, and this is the Watsika Wonder Part 2. Alright, so this is actually my favorite part of the episode is part two because we get into the debunking factor. We get into a lot of highly educated people who studied this case early on from the late 1800s, early 1900s, and I think that's more beneficial to an extent. Obviously, we have way more understanding nowadays, but back then, they had the advantage of actually going there, interviewing surviving witnesses, and so on and so forth. So the first person we're going to talk about is Dr. Hodgson. First of all, I love this guy because he has my dream job. He is basically a professional debunker who just traveled around the world in the late 1800s debunking all this kind of shit. In 1890, he decided to investigate all this. He was originally from Australia. He received a Doctor of Law degree in 1878. In the 1880s, he moved to England to study poetry at St. John's College in Cambridge. That's where he met a guy named Harry Sidgwick, who was one of his professors at Cambridge, and he became a member of the Society for Physical Research, known as SPR, in 1882. Hodgson joined the American Society for Physical Research in 1887 to serve as its secretary, and he, like I said, traveled around the world. He was basically a, a professional debunker of this kind of stuff. So in 1890, Dr. Hodgson had come to America to investigate the trans mediumship of Mrs. Lenora Piper, 
who is a very um, interesting character if you want to look into her. But uh, his attention ended up being called over to the Lorancy Venom mystery, the alleged possession. So in April of 1890, he visited Watsika, and he cross-examined all the surviving witnesses. And it wasn't just like a one-time go-round. They literally described it as rigorous. He went through and just detailed and everything. Now, Dr. E. Winchester Stevens was already dead at this point, and Lorancy herself had married and moved with her husband to Kansas. But Dr. Hodgson was able to interview Mr. and Mrs. Roth, Mrs. Alter, and about half a dozen neighbors who had personal knowledge of the alleged possession. They all answered his questions freely and fully, and they reiterated the facts as Dr. Stevens had printed in his little book, you know, that whole narrative. They also added more interesting information that was not known to the public before this. His round of questioning basically was centered around the identity of Lorancy Venom and Mary Roth. And it kind of vindicated the whole reincarnation theory, that because that's kind of where they were with it. Even though reincarnation, like, Mary Roth was still alive when Lorancy Venom was born. So I really don't see a reincarnation theory going on there, but, you know, to each their own. Now, a lot of this provided more information, too, that stated even though Lorancy had grown and she was healthy, she was strong, she was totally fine and normal, she did have occasional returns of Mary's spirit in the years immediately following this initial visitation of Mary's spirit. So, even though... You know, they said that she was healthy and the spirit never returned. They found out years later that the spirit actually did return in some way, shape, or form. So there's that. But according to Dr. Hodgson, all these had ceased when she married a man that was not into spiritualism or spiritism. And according to Mr. Roth and Dr. Stevens... Because her husband didn't believe in this certain spirituality, and what they said was Mr. Roth was kind of disappointed because because she married a guy that was not into spiritualism or spiritism, he said that it furnished poor conditions for further development in that direction. So basically because she didn't get involved with somebody with the same beliefs as Mr. Roth, then basically... Her ability to have Mary Roth possess her body further uh, kind of went away because he didn't believe in that. And then Lorancy ended up living her life, her own life, and Mary supposedly didn't return anymore or very often because it wasn't encouraged. Now, these are the words of Henry Addington Bruce. He said, he appreciated the fact that Mr. Roth and his family had furnished the best possible conditions for such development. He had to be on his guard against unconscious exaggeration and misstatement. And he was referring to Dr. Hodgson investigating this. And Dr. Hodgson, who as we had just heard, is not a dumb guy. He's highly educated, okay? So Dr. Hodgson, he reviewed all the evidence that was presented to him. 
and he said it was too strong to be explained away on naturalistic grounds. Now, he contributed to the Religio-Philosophical Journal an account of his inquiry and of the additional data it had brought to light. Because, like I said, he cross-examined everybody who was a witness who talked to Lurancy while she was allegedly possessed by Mary's spirit. All that shit. And he described the case as unique among the records of supernormal occurrences. And he straight up admitted he could not find any satisfactory interpretation of it except the spiritualistic. Like I said, Dr. Hodgson was like the Sherlock Holmes of paranormal researchers, right? He just went around debunking this shit all over the country, all over the world. He was a very open-minded skeptic, and that's what he was described as, by the hardest skeptic, Henry Eddington Bruce. And here's the deal. He was not nice about it. Like, if you were lying and he thought the case was total shit and had no grounds to stand on, he was the first person to talk about it. So the fact that Henry Addington Bruce actually acknowledged that and um, gave him credit for the research that he did do is actually pretty awesome because Henry Addington Bruce, like I said, is the toughest critic, okay? And we're about to get to him in a second. Like I said, Dr. Hodgson literally has my dream job. If somebody would pay me what I make now from my normal, you know, nine to fiver job, not from podcasting, God forbid, you know, if they would pay me to go around and debunk shit like this, that would be the greatest job on earth. So, you know, you can take his investigation and his knowledge and his statements as they are, whether you want to give them more credit because he had the advantage of interviewing and talking to all these people and literally studying what they said and comparing it to the actual case and all the previous statements from these same people when the case actually occurred, like, that's on you. You give that as much credit as you want. I'm just here to give you the information. So, like I said, the hugest critic, Henry Eddington Bruce. He is the author of Historic Ghosts and Ghost Hunters, published in 1908. And I'm going to tell you why he is such a such a central figure in this debunking, okay? Very educated man. Bruce was born in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. He was educated at Upper Canada College and Trinity College, Toronto. Then he went to Harvard. He was, for a time, on the Toronto Week... Then he came to the United States. He was employed by the American Press Association from 1897 to 1903. And then he would contribute periodicals and shit like that, you know, later to the paper or whatever the publication was and um, all that stuff. And in 1915, he became a psychological advisor to the Associated Newspapers a year later, he resigned as staff contributor to a publication called The Outlook. He was also a lecturer on psychology, education, and sociology. Now, Addington Bruce also wrote books. His most successful work was in American history and in popularizing modern psychology and physical research. He was often described as a publicist for psychology. His books 
were known to discuss the subconscious and power of suggestion. They were positively reviewed in the American Journal of Psychology and Journal of Abnormal Psychology. His book, published in 1918, called Nerve Control and How to Gain It, was described as a reliable book which can be put into the hands of the nervously ill but intelligent patient. Addington Bruce also took an interest in physical research. He was a believer in telepathy, though. There was one person who took issue with him. It was a guy, a philosopher, named William Pepperell Montague. And um, basically, he took issue with him because Bruce was such a believer in telepathy. And he would not address the known objections to telepathy. So basically, because Henry Addington Bruce was a believer in telepathy, he also kind of ignored and did not address all the known objections to it, which is the same confirmation bias that I had talked about in part one when it came to E. Winchester Stevens being the doctor that came and interviewed and talked to and looked at and all that stuff when it came to Lorancy Venom. So even with the debunker, we do have a little bit of confirmation bias when it comes to his personal beliefs. So the book Historic Ghosts and Ghost Hunters is generally skeptical of poltergeist cases, concluding that they are best explained by fraud and psychological factors such as hallucination or suggestion. And the reason I say cases, you know, a plural, is because the book isn't just about the Watsika Wonder. It actually references a lot of cases, and it is free, PDF online. And it is a super awesome book because you will hear about cases that you have never heard of before. And I actually thought about covering a few of them because of this book, you know, it, it uh, brought to light a bunch of cases I had never heard before, and I was like, wow, man, this dude did in-depth research on a bunch of shit I had never heard of before. I love it. So, definitely go and look that up online. It is free PDF. You can read it right there online. It is a pretty awesome book. So, moving forward, he was also a trustee of the American Society for Physical Research, same organization that uh, Dr. Hodgson worked for. And he did contribute articles to Tomorrow Magazine. Very educated guy. Very well-rounded guy. He's an open-minded skeptic. But we do have some confirmation bias when it comes to his personal beliefs. And the example being telepathy. Most of what I'm going to tell you is in his words. Uh, I'm not going to read them verbatim, obviously. But it is paraphrased from his book. So he says, It may now be affirmed that another interpretation is possible and one more satisfactory than the spiritistic. This would also verify the truthfulness of the testimony given by Dr. Stevens, the Roth family, and the numerous other witnesses. So to begin, apart from the supernatural implications forced into it by the appearance of the so-called spirit control, this whole case bears a striking resemblance to the case of secondary or multiple personalities which recent research has discovered in such numbers and which are due to perfectly natural 
if often obscure, causes. In these cases, it has already been pointed out that they were that they were a result of an illness, a blow to the head, a shock, or some other unusual stimulus. There is a partial or complete knowledge of the original personality of the victim and its replacement by a new personality, sometimes of radically different characteristics from the normal self. Basically saying, let's say you're Lorancy Venom and you get taken over by Mary Roth. You know that you're being taken over by this spirit or whatever the case is, even though you're characteristics and your personality might be changing radically or a little differently whatever the case is but there's still that knowledge that you are not the person you once were now he gives a few reference cases and this is what i was talking about uh this is why this book is so cool because it gives a lot of other cases kind of like this now the first case that he references the case of reverend thomas c hannah and he gives credit to a guy named Dr. Boris Sidis, who basically was a scientist or the doctor who worked this case. So Reverend Thomas Hanna, he fell from a carriage one day, and uh, he was a Connecticut clergyman. And when he fell, he lost all consciousness of his identity. He had no memory of any of the events of his life prior to that accident. He recognized none of his friends. He couldn't read or write. He could not even walk and talk. And they said that he was like a newborn child. Addington Bruce says, As soon as the rudiments of education were acquired by him again, because like I said, he was like a child after this accident, he was basically processing another personality, and the new one was vigorous, independent, self-reliant, and still lacked all knowledge of the original personality, but still able to adapt himself readily to his environment and make headway in the world. So Dr. Sidis worked with this guy, and he was able to recall the personality and the person that he had forgotten when this accident occurred. And he basically combined, (laughs) like, he restored... Reverend Hannah to the former personality that he was before the accident. Now, Addington Bruce also adds that this is a very extreme example, and the usual procedure is for the secondary personality to retain some of the characteristics of the original personality, just like the ability to read, the ability to write, walk, talk, all that kind of stuff. He kind of infused both of those personalities together, but the original self was more prevalent, even though he had to relearn, you know, how to do all this shit again. Okay, so, I mean, we see that today a lot of times, you know what I mean? So, like, seeing this in 1908 and the example of it, it's like, man, I don't know, kind of seen that a few times, you know? People get that bad head injury, they don't know what the fuck's going on. They think they're somebody else. They re-educate themselves. They have to learn how to walk, talk, everything all over again. So yeah, they're naturally going to have a different personality based on their current surroundings. So pretty interesting case though. 
Another case that he references is a guy named Ansel Bourne, and he was a preacher from Rhode Island. And he had kind of somehow, they didn't even state, he didn't even get into specifics on how it happened, but he kind of like transitioned into this person he called A.J. Brown. And he had no recollection of his former career or relationships. This guy, though, ended up drifting off to Pennsylvania from Rhode Island, and he began an entirely new life as a shopkeeper in some small country town. He had no recollection of his former life, and he lived out his fucking existence in this small Pennsylvania town thinking that he was this new guy who was named A.J. Brown. Apparently, I like I said, they don't go into specifics about it. The words that he used is that he kind of like morphed into this A.J. Brown character and just like left town one day and went to a different state and started a whole new life. To be honest with you, not a very good fucking example because here in 2021, I want to do that. You know what I mean? It's impossible now with technology pretty much, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So not too crazy of a reference case not a very good reference i don't think now this reference case is actually pretty good um a guy named dr r osgood mason had a patient they referred to as alma z now in the secondary personality she assumed the name of tui dr mason said she spoke in a peculiar childlike and indian like dialect it was like she was a child from a different country altogether. And then this personality announced that her mission was to cure the broken down physical organism of the original self, which remained completely gone as long as Tui was present in this body. Addington Bruce says this is probably the, the strongest comparison because the, the case is almost identical to the Lorancy Venom case. But the big difference was that this person, Tui, um, who was also credited with having supernatural powers, did not pose as a returned visitor from the world of spirits. Like, it wasn't a reincarnation type scenario. So... Depending on the argument from analogy, the presumption is strong that Lorancy's case belongs to the same category as those three cases just mentioned. And this is where I have a problem with this. Listen, if you're going to cherry pick, okay, there's hundreds of cases like this throughout the years, throughout the centuries. You can't just pick your three favorite cases that best describe this one new case and then be like, yeah, obviously, it's all these three cases combined, except it's Lorancy Venom, you know, with the whole Mary Ruff scenario. That just, uh, it, that really doesn't sit well with me because there's differences in all three of these cases. Now, I will say, in the case of Lorancy Venom, as in all those other three, the person lost their original self, they developed a new self. And the enhancement of the new self basically kicked out the former one. Damn it, that's a lot. But you guys understand what I'm saying. None of my listeners are, are dumb, so you guys understand what I'm saying. Like, the new personality basically overtook the old one, and 
said, well, I'm in control now until I say otherwise, blah, blah, blah. So the one hard comparison of those three cases compared to Lorancy Venom was the fact that in Lorancy Venom's case, the personality that decided to take control of Lorancy Venom was actually a person that had been alive and that had taken over and supposedly was able to talk about her former life, her former friends, her former family, so on and so forth. And that's what makes those three comparisons to Lorancy Venom extremely difficult. But Addington Bruce also adds that on this point, considerable light is shed by the discovery that a number of instances of the secondary personality in which no supernatural pretensions are advanced, there is a notable sharpening of faculties. Meaning the person is smarter, better, they have stronger senses, whatever the case may be. There was also stronger knowledge being obtained telepathically or clairvoyantly, and by the further discovery that this is quite possible to create the secondary selves assuming the characteristics of real persons who have died. In this, the creative force is nothing more or less than suggestion. And basically his whole synopsis when he's talking about these cases and when he's reviewing the Lorancy Venom case is that it was based on subliminal suggestion because whether Dr. Stevens decided to, or actually he did at a couple points, hypnotize Lorancy Venom to accept Mary Roth's spirit, or basically not necessarily Mary's, but to accept a good spirit so that the evil ones could not possess her body. And supposedly a 13-year-old girl, according to Addington Bruce, was smart enough to pick up on these subliminal suggestions like a modern-day mentalist and absorb this whole new personality, all right? And trust me, when I get to my notes, like at the very end of all this shit and I start picking this stuff apart, I have my own questions about this, okay? Because that is a huge grasp at a straw right there. Thinking that a 13-year-old girl has... And I'm not saying, you know, Lorancy Venom was dumb or slow or anything like that, but thinking any kind of 13-year-old person is intelligent enough to pick up on subliminal suggestions, I don't know, man. Like, that's that's kind of stretching for me a little bit. I like to stay logical here, all right? But anyway... Addington Bruce also gives another reference case after this, and he says there is a record, uh, which is an instance of mediumship, in which the medium, who was an amateur investigator of spiritualism, he recognized that his various impersonations were suggested to him by his spectators. This guy's name was Mr. Charles H. Tout of Vancouver, and he records that after attending a few seances with some friends, he felt a strong impulse to turn medium himself, and he decided to assume a foreign personality. So basically, this Charles H. Tout guy, 
he had this impulse to all of a sudden become a medium and assume somebody else's, a dead person's personality. He went ahead and did it. And he discovered that he could develop a secondary self without losing complete control of his consciousness. And he could impose this so-called spirit, this secondary personality, he could impose this on the people around him during seances and whatever the case was. On one occasion, he acted semi-conscious, saying he was a dead woman, the mother of a friend present. And the impersonation was accepted as a genuine case of spirit control by the other person. On another occasion, having given several successful impersonations, he suddenly felt weak and ill and almost fell to the floor. At this point, he stated that one of the people there made the remark, It is Father controlling him. Now Charles Tout then says, And I then seemed to realize who I was and whom I was seeking. I began to be distressed in my lungs and should have fallen if they had not held me by the hands and let me back gently upon the floor. I was in a measure still conscious by the actions, though not of my surroundings, and I have a clear memory of seeing myself in the character of my dying father laying in the bed and in the room in which he died. It was a most curious sensation. I saw his sunken hands and face and lived again through his dying moments. Only now I was both myself in an indistinct sort of way and my father with his feelings and appearance. And then Tao explained that the dramatic working out by some half-conscious stratum of his personality, of suggestions made at the time by other members of the circle or received in prior experiences of the kind. But, Addington Bruce says, in most instances, however... The original self is completely gone and no consciousness is retained of the performances of the secondary self. But an avenue of sense is still open, is sufficiently demonstrated by the readiness with which, in hypnotic experiments, seemingly insensible subjects respond to the suggestions of the operator. And this is basically saying what I was say, saying before, like... This Charles Tao guy picked up on these suggestions and acted the role and people started fucking believing him. And to be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure why Addington Bruce puts so much stock in this account. I mean, I kind of do understand because the Charles Tao guy actually fully admits, he comes forward and he says, listen, I felt this urge to become a medium, so I did. And then I started feeling these certain sorts of ways, and I actually have had a vision of my own father, and this, that, and the other, which would actually suggest that Addington Bruce gave this guy more credit than Lorancy Venom for whatever reason, probably because he admitted that he was working on suggestion and this and that. But he also contradicts himself by saying, you know, well, this guy was the per is a great example of, you know, saying he wanted to be a medium and he was open to suggestion and all the people at these seances believed him, but he totally disregards the fact 
of what Charles Tout said when he was talking about how he actually felt and saw his own father's withered body and he felt like him and he fell over and he became sick and all this other stuff. So, again, there are some contradictions with the debunkers and trust me, when we get to the episode and I have my whole notes of questions here, we're going we're gonna to hit them round for round, okay? Because I'm a skeptic, but I'm also open-minded. So, there's that. According to Addington Bruce, this was our cure to the solution of the mystery of Lorancy Venom. And he says that she was a victim of psychic catastrophe, and the cause of which must be left to conjecture in the absence of knowledge of her previous history. She was placed in precisely the position of Mr. Tout and of the inert subjects of the hypnotist's art. Lorancy momentarily lost all knowledge and control of her own personality. The character that her new personality would assume depended on the suggestions received from those around her. Dr. Stevens' detailed record contains a reference which indicates strongly that the spiritualistic tendency manifested from the onset of her trouble was to some extent predetermined. And he gives the example of a few days before the first attack. She informed the family that there were persons in the room last night and that they called Rancy, Rancy, and I felt their breath on my face. And the next night, she repeated the same story. Now, he says that this is possible auto-suggestion. And that's why the personalities were vague at first, like the old mad woman Katrina. You had the masculine Willie. He says that these personalities were tried by Lorenzi Venom and then rejected, and that her 13-year-old mind didn't have the imagination to give them personalities. My big question with this is her 13-year-old mind couldn't come up with personalities for these characters, but yet she was picking up on auto-suggestion like she was a modern-day mentalist. You see the contradiction there? You know what I'm saying? Doesn't make much sense right there. But he says part of that is because she didn't get understood by her family because they didn't believe in spirits. They were religious and they were Christians, and they just thought that she was insane. But then as soon as the Roths and Dr. Stevens got involved, everything changed. They didn't question anything she was saying. They just believed. And the doctor also had confirmation bias, which I had mentioned at the huge elephant in the room with Dr. E. Winchester Stevens. And I actually agree with this, this little paragraph as well, talking about how, you know, as soon as the Roths and Dr. Stevens got involved, everything did change. We know that by fact. So by doing this, like feeding into it for Lorancy Venom, they offered her basically a ready-made personality. Mary Roth was the foundation because Mary Roth had real thoughts at one time, real feelings, personality. Mary was actually a real person that people knew. She had friends, relationships, characteristics. So Lorancy just kind of built off of all of that because there was actual knowledge 
of Mary and not like the first two personalities that took her over. They were just kind of very vague. So this unfortunately still doesn't explain some things though. Like how did she know her sister's nickname when they first pulled up to the Venom house? Because that statement wasn't anything that the Roths said or E. Winchester Stevens. Like E. Winchester Stevens reported on it in his book because the mother of Lorenzi Venom, who didn't believe in this shit, was the person who said it. And she had no clue what she was saying. She just, as soon as uh, the mom and sister, I think it was Nervy was her nickname, when she saw her pulling up to the house, that's what she called her. Lorenzi Venom's mom did not know that. And she was the one that reported that to Dr. Stevens. Unless he was absolutely full of shit and lying, which, you know, it, it could be a possibility. I don't know. All I can do is tell you what I'm thinking and some of the facts on this case. So, like I said, Henry Addington Bruce suggested that Mary's family was making random remarks and saying certain things. And giving all these hints unconsciously. They were giving unnoticed suggestions. They were giving subtle influence. But at the same time, Henry Addington Bruce says that her 13-year-old mind couldn't come up with any kind of imagination to form personalities based on the two initial people that supposedly possessed her body. You see where the contradiction comes in again? I know I stated that like five minutes ago, but you see where I'm going with this? The contradictions. It bothers me. So basically, Lorancy was looking for a personality. She took the opening that was given to her, and that's why the other personalities disappeared as soon as Mary Roth took over. Now, adding to that, Dr. Stevens actually hypnotized her in order for her to be taken over, if she was going to be taken over, by a positive spirit, not negative ones. So, just keep that in the back of your mind, alright? So, the Roth family, unfortunately, was so willing to believe this that they more than likely ignored or wrote off all things that Lorancy got wrong about Mary. And this ties into the idea that she was not crazy, and she had no more fits after this. Now, I can totally fucking see that happening. I can totally see, same like I've said it I think three or four times, confirmation bias. I can totally see that being the case. But that also does not explain the friends and relatives of the Roth family and the fact that according to Dr. Stevens, he also described her daughter who had died previously and his house, which was in a completely different state that she had no idea about. So another thing that I have to point out in this, this I think is a very, very good point. So you have a 13-year-old girl that is acting out, whether it be for attention or whatever the case may be, why would she be willing to take it to the point where she is almost committed to an asylum? Like, I don't think you guys realize, she was like a week or two away from being put in an asylum for the rest of her natural life. Why would she act this out and carry out this role to that kind of extreme. 
You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, at the last minute, she probably could have pulled the plug and just been like, I was I was screwing with you guys and you all fell for it. Ha ha ha. But during these fits, I mean, if you're going catatonic for five hours at a time to the point where you're bending backwards to where your feet almost touch the back of your head and you're sitting like that for hours, that to me is extreme. And I don't see why a 13-year-old girl would take it to that level. You know what I mean? To the point where she's almost thrown in an asylum. Like, that just kind of doesn't make sense to me. But, through the power of suggestion, Dr. Stevens and the Roths basically believed that Mary could help Lorancy. And maybe the power of suggestion actually did help her. And it's uh, it's referred to as psychotherapeutics. And this is therapy through talk. And they bring up the point that there was a time limit given on the possession. You know, they gave her a fixed idea um, that not only would she be Lorancy again, but she would be cured when she did become Lorancy again. It's like the Roths and Dr. Stevens kind of hypnotized her gave her commands that she was supposed to follow. And then this might explain why, when the May deadline did actually approach, there were times when either Mary or Lorancy was in control. And Addington Bruce does reference that this is the same thing that happened in the Reverend Hannah case that I had mentioned previously. So... He went ahead and characterized Venom as unduly suggestible, and that is his quotation saying, and he said that it may safely be declared that the phenomena manifested through Lorancy Venom were not a whit more otherworldly than the phenomena produced by tricksters whom Dr. Hodgson himself so skillfully and mercifully exposed. And the reason I love that is because he brought up Dr. Hodgson again and he mentioned the fact that the dude was a badass when it came to debunking this shit and that he was brutal about it, okay? But the fact that Dr. Hodgson himself cross-examined all these people, all these witnesses, he never gives credit where it's due. So I don't know if he's just kind of throwing some shade, you know what I mean? Throwing a little bit of smoke at Dr. Hodgson right now. But I am pretty confident, I'm like 99% sure that Henry Addington Bruce never went and talked to any of these people himself. I think he just read the reports from Hodgson, read Dr. Stevens' uh, book and his papers that he published on this, and read the accounts and kind of judged from, uh, you know, the Monday morning quarterback position, if that makes sense. I know a lot of you guys catch that reference, but it's the Monday morning. Hindsight is always twenty twenty kind of thing, you know. Monday morning quarterback, oh, well, yeah, I would have done this or I would have done that. And it's like, well, you weren't there, dude. You weren't there during the game. So I don't want to hear shit. But to suggest that... Lorancy <laughs> Venom, as a 13-year-old, was able to pick up on all these references, all these hints, all this subtle suggestion, but yet she still didn't have the imagination to 
create personalities for the first two people that supposedly possessed her body. I do not like that. That just doesn't sit well with me. And like I said, I know I've brought it up like three or four times now, and I'm sorry I'm being annoying and repetitive, but it does not make sense to me. That's a total contradiction. And like I said, it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback, but Dr. Hodgson was actually there. He was on the ground. And the fact that Bruce gives him credit where it's due, I do like that. I really do. I respect that because he's like, dude, Dr. Hodgson was kind of a bad motherfucker when it came to debunking this kind of shit. Okay, but why couldn't he do this one? He must have not seen this or saw that or noticed this. But And before we go on with a few more things, uh, we are going to take a break and we're going to get some advertisements in here, okay? I'll meet you guys here back in about three or four minutes. You can either hang out, you can take this time, go get a drink, do whatever you got to do. Meet me back here in a few minutes, and we will continue because there's still more we got to talk about, okay? This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. So now that things are starting to get back to normal this summer, fall's coming, spending time with friends and family, one thing that won't change for me is Best Fiends. The only difference now is that I can play it while I'm doing all that other stuff too. I spend all day looking into crimes, sometimes the paranormal, UFOs, strange stuff, history, everything like that. But every now and then I need a break, so when I need that mental palate cleanser, I play Best Fiends. It's a fun, casual game that you can play right on your phone. Any age can play. It's fun for me because it's challenging. New levels always popping up, new events coming out every single month, so it just never gets old. Whether I just have a spare 15 minutes or just a couple hours to kill, And one of the good things is you don't even need the internet to play. The colors are amazing and keep your attention. And all these characters can power up and get better abilities and you can try to match which of those characters are best for each level. You can also see your rank against all your friends too. I'm up to level 250 right now. And it's so fun it really didn't take me long to get there. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. So, a psychologist named Frank Hoffman, he reviewed the case, and he regarded Venom as a typical case of hysterical impersonation and wrote that there was no evidence Venom had knowledge she could not have obtained by normal means. Now, to be honest with you, I can relate to that. And he said that the grieving Roth family did everything in their power to encourage Venom that she was their Mary. Now, I will say this, I do agree with that to an extent. The only thing I do disagree with is that when he says um, Lorancy had knowledge she could not have obtained by normal means. And, And I say that just because of the circumstances and the details that she knew. Now, this is assuming that the Roth family and... Dr. Stevens, are all telling the truth. And that actually includes the Venom family too because a lot of these accounts come directly from them and they are people who did not believe in spiritualism or spiritism, anything like that. 
we do have to acknowledge that fact. Now, Frank Hoffman, he was alive during that time period. He ended up dying in 1928. I think he was 70 years old, almost 70. Uh, He was also a member of the American Psychology Society, the American Philosophical Association. He was a a philosopher, and he wrote a lot of shit about psychology and religion. Now, I I understand how philosophy works because... When I was in college, I was a philosophy major with an English literature minor, okay? I was into the deep thinking shit. There's just certain aspects of the Lorenzi Venom case that can't just be explained away by generalizations. Alright, there's a lot more in-depth and more details that deserve to be dissected. And unfortunately, because the case was, you know, 140 years ago... We can't do that. So, I mean, he did live in the time period, but he also never took the trek there. He didn't interview any of these people. I will say, very intelligent, very highly respected man. I mean, educated at Amherst, got his PhD, studied at Yale, all that shit. So, I do respect that, but at the same time, there's still that hole. There's still those questions there. Now, there is another guy named William James who briefly mentioned the case in his book, The Principles of Psychology, which was published in 1890. And William James actually commented that it is perhaps as extreme a case of possession of the modern sort as one can find. Now, here you go. You have two highly educated men, both studying around the same type of thing, you know, like uh, psychology, religion, philosophy. I'm not saying those are all intertwined in the same thing by any means. They're totally different. But two highly educated men who are um, very logical, and one writing a book on the principles of psychology around the same time period, who was alive back then as well, he studied the case. And he says that This is the most modern case of possession that we will ever see. Basically saying this is the real deal, alright? Now, moving forward, (laughs) I got my little notepad over here where I still handwrite notes. I know it sounds crazy. And I have a lot of them written down, a lot of questions. So let's get into those and then we can go ahead and end the episode and read some reviews. With the available evidence that has been provided to us by the Roths, by the Venom family, by friends, relatives, and by Dr. Stevens, the recurrences initially developed at first when the Roths were visiting her. And I know I kind of shit on Henry Eddington Bruce for a little bit, threw a little bit of shade at him. But in all honesty, he does bring up a lot of good points because she didn't adopt really that personality before they got there and it wasn't like full steam and a full bore. And the fact that all this stuff completely stopped according to him when she got married to a guy that was not into spiritism or spiritualism and they ended up moving away to Kansas City and you know had a bunch of kids and everything like that but at the same time you also have instances where 
Dr. Hodgson and E. Winchester Stevens stated that there actually were occurrences that happened after that, but not to the extreme, and it was very, very rare. So um, we also have to bring up the fact that in Associated Press magazine back in the day, the story was published, and this was a little bit later on after the case had already happened and they were kind of revisiting it. This is when fraud came back into view. Now, a resident of Watsika came forward and said that Lorancy did suffer from nervous trouble and that she consciously impersonated Mary so she could be closer to one of the Roth boys because Mr. and Mrs. Roth did have a couple boys too. Now, there was one named Joseph who was 10 years older than Lorancy, and there was Fenton who was 8 years older than Lorancy. Is this a plausible scenario? Absolutely. But again, I have to bring up the point of why would she go to the extremes of that, of almost getting committed to an asylum for the rest of her natural life just so she could talk to a couple of boys across town and live with them for like 15 weeks. You know what I mean? I mean, like I said, plausible scenario. I can totally see that being the case. But at the same time, we got to think percentages. What are the percentages of that happening? I would say less than 50, you know what I mean? Now, if this person who didn't say anything before this later publication, like never said anything to Dr. Hodgson, never said anything to Dr. Stevens, never said anything to the Venom family, never said anything to anyone else, why would they come forward years later and just be like, oh yeah, she was she was full of shit, dude. She just had a crush on one of the Roth boys. That's why she did it, man. Totally faked it. She had some nervous trouble, yeah. But yeah, she totally faked a possession just so she could live in their house for 15 weeks. Does not make that much sense when you think about it in that fashion. And I guess that's kind of the way that I think about it. So, I don't know. Take that as you will. And obviously, there is no name put on this resident that came forward so it's one of those <laughs> confidential people apparently i don't know if the person actually had a name and could get more in depth i would probably put more credit into that but as it sits now i just don't see that one thing that bothers me is when she initially is giving the description of the roth house if you remember when Mr. Roth and Dr. Stevens initially came to visit her, she started describing the Roth house. What I want to know is, was she describing the current house or the older house that she, as Mary, had lived in prior to? Because if you remember, when they were traveling to the Roth home, she thought the older house was the one that they still lived in. But they didn't. They had moved like years prior to Lorancy being, you know, five years old. Like soon after Mary died is when the Roth family moved. But yet Lorancy still knew that that was their old house. So when she was describing the house, was she describing the old house or the new house? And I know it's not a very huge detail, but I would still like to know that detail. Um, just a little, you know, question that I had about it. Now, when you bring up the fact that she 
faked being Mary Roth in order to get closer to one of the Roth boys, okay, because she was supposedly in love with them. Did she really think that was going to work? You know what I'm saying? Think about it this way. If you're a boy and some neighbor girl is pretending to be your dead sister, literally naming all kinds of details about her past life, this, that, and the other, are you going to be wooed by that? You know what I'm saying? Like wooed by somebody pretending to be your dead sibling? Now, I know she's a 13-year-old. We all do dumb shit when we're 13. But let's think about that for one second. I don't think that Lorancy Venom was out of her mind. I don't think she was simple-minded enough to think that something like that would work. And that's why I kind of call bullshit on the resident that later came forward you know what i'm saying because that whole scenario not gonna fucking work another thing is the nickname of her sister uh, the nickname being nervy now is it possible that she might have overheard mr roth refer to mary's sister as nervy when he was talking to her the first time or she might have overheard him talking to Dr. Stevens about Nervy or something like that. Absolute possibility. But in that same breath, we have to bring up the fact that according to all parties involved, based on the evidence given, she did recall past events that were only known by the family. Now we do have, like I had mentioned prior, the confirmation bias. Maybe the Roth family was just so willing to believe that it was their daughter that had passed away that they were willing to ignore little details that were wrong and just fed into the details that were right. That is a very, very good possibility. There were also supposedly family members and friends that had come over that she recognized and knew as well. So... If she was lying and they were present and they knew about it, they never came forward either. We do have to consider that. And again, I got to bring up the fact, if she was faking this, when it came down to brass tacks to where her parents were getting ready to send her to an asylum for the rest of her natural life, why didn't she admit she was faking it then? She didn't. She still held her ground this, that, and the other. She believed what was happening was happening. She never broke the fact that weird shit was happening to her. And then we have to consider all the fits, you know, the quote-unquote fits that she was having. I mean, whether they were epileptic, catalytic, whatever reference they called them back then. Like, these were extreme, you know, they were happening very frequently, and the fact that she, if it was epilepsy, the fact that they didn't occur afterward is something that we do have to take note of, and the fact that Mary even said when she was possessing Lorancy's body that she is going to stay away until her body and her mind is completely healed. And that's how it happened. You know, like I said, like, I don't buy into a lot of shit. I'm still very skeptical on this case. But we do have to address some things that are pretty weird about this case. Now, we also have to address the fact that 
with the reference cases that Henry Eddington Bruce brought forth. None of these cases involved a young teenage female. They never involved a possibly prepubescent or a young woman who was going through puberty at this time. They were all adults. They were all males with the exception of one female who he actually credited with being the closest case to Lorancy Venoms. With the mind, the body, everything like that, obviously that brings up a lot of differences, but that is something that we have to think about and that we have to address because with the reference cases, although they are good and although Henry Addington Bruce decided to cherry pick his three or four favorite ones out of a whole mess of them, you know, to basically contain his whole theory on what happened to Lorancy. We have to address the differences in these cases as well, and the fact that he really didn't address any that were even remotely close to a young female. So that is a point that we do have to bring up. But I don't know. There's a lot of questions here. These are some of the things that I kind of uh, wanted to point out and that I kind of saw along the way and picked up on and wrote down. Obviously, there's probably a lot more things involved. And if you're in the Facebook group, when I post this episode, I would love to hear your thoughts on it in the comments. And here's the deal. If you're one of those people who's just going to be like, oh, this is total bullshit, it's fake, don't comment. Just keep scrolling and wait for the next episode. If you actually have some questions or some intriguing thoughts on this case, I would love to hear them. Because there's, like I said, there's a lot of details. There's a lots of things that I probably didn't see or pick up on. Somebody actually suggested that maybe it's possible that Lorancy Venom was being molested or something by her parents. Or by her father, I should say. And, dude, that could totally be a scenario as well. I don't know. There's a lot of factors involved in the Lorancy Venom case some of them are hard to ignore and write off, while other ones, you know, there's there's a lot of things that you could present that seem extremely plausible for an explanation. I'm not a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, not a doctor. I'm, I'm literally just a guy behind a microphone. So when I post this episode, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on this case. I thought it was an interesting case. Uh, I've wanted to get into it for a long time. I actually wanted to get part two out sooner. I had to take care of Blood and Dust, my other podcast. Uh, we just started back up again. So that was that's pretty fun. We covered Butch Cassidy. So, um, yeah, if you haven't heard of that podcast and you're into the Wild West, check that out for sure. Um, but, yeah, ways you can get a hold of me. You can get me on Facebook, uh, the page and the group. Just type in Mysterious Circumstances. You'll find both. You can follow me on Instagram. You just go to mysterious underscore podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at podcastmc. Yeah, other than that, you can always email me, justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com. But yeah, other than that, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode, and I hope you decide to stick around for a few reviews. Until next time, I will see you folks on the flip side. All right, we got the U.S. of A. We got five stars by Vaz4.
Interesting content. I just found this podcast while looking for something to listen to. Clearly, the host can make or break a podcast. This is easy to listen to and has great storytelling. I'm really enjoying the stories. Thanks. Well, Vaz4, the pleasure is all mine. I love telling these stories. I love researching them and presenting them to you guys. I try really hard not to lose the objectivity. I'm glad you can appreciate the storytelling factor. So, uh, Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Next up, we got five stars. LeJohn Brames, 23. God, please tell me you're not a LeBron fan, dude. <laughs> I'm not a hater. I'd put him in my top 10 or 15. But, you know, I just... <laughs> I don't know. He's been He's been spoiled since he was about 16, 17 years old. And I don't think he has a very good grasp on reality. <laughs> so... <laughs> That and he's a flopper, hardcore flopper, but I do respect him as a top 10, top 15 all-time basketball player. But anyway, five five stars. This dude is probably going to get changed to a one star after he hears this, <laughs> but I hope not, but um, it says informative and entertaining. I am a Spotify listener, uh, but I had to come review the podcast to support it because it is 100% worth supporting. Justin has a great personality and sense of humor while also giving the more serious aspects of the case the deference they deserve. Uh, I discovered this podcast while looking for episodes about Jesse James, and after finding Justin's, I was hooked. The research is far above what one would expect from an indie podcaster with a day job and on par with even some of the bigger podcasts of similar genres. There's some cursing, but is very tastefully done, not overused, and in my opinion is quite humorous. Uh, can't wait to listen to the new Blackbeard episode. Well, I tell you what, dude, uh, those Western episodes, I pre first of all, I appreciate the compliment on the, uh, on the research. Thank you very much because I fucking work hard on it and I do not podcast for a living. I really do have a day job. And uh yeah, it's overwhelming sometimes, you know. Yeah, I mean there's that um Jesse James, one of my favorite series that I've done. Uh I love adding context to those old guys and Jesse James was a very interesting very interesting figure and I'm really glad that you enjoyed that. And I hope you enjoyed the Blackbeard episode as well. So uh, thank you very much for taking the time to um, to leave that review. Um, but yeah, that's all for the U.S. for now. Um, got that, you know that I do have that one one star from SM Havoc. Who I don't know. They just have a they're a fucking idiot. Where do you get your research? The internet. Yeah, motherfucker. Actually, I do get it from the internet because I can't travel all over the world and visit libraries and fucking police stations in the basement and look through case files. Fuck yeah, I get my information from the internet just like you do. It's crazy. And by the way, here's a life hack. If you want to look up a specific phrase on any subject that you're researching, when you go to search it in Google, which I actually use... Uh, I don't use Google as a search engine because I actually found that they do censor some stuff. Uh, it sounds crazy, I know, but they really do. Um, but if you are on Google and you want to look for something specific, put a certain phrase or keyword in quotation marks and your search results will be way more specific. And if you're looking for something that might be in a book as well, when you put that phrase into Google, 
and hit the search button and your results come up, go to the tab and click on books. You'll be amazed what you can find. And uh, for SM Havoc, obviously, that's how fucking horrible my research is. Fucking asshole. But uh, next one's from UK. Five stars. TJW7229 says, awesome. I came here for Blackbeard, but I too am a huge admirer of Jimi Hendrix. I enjoy the approach of unwrapping these stories, man. They give me some wisdom in a work environment that severely lacks a great job. Dude, I can appreciate that. My work environment lacks some fucking wisdom too, man. No, in all actuality, I work in the aerospace industry, so I'm surrounded by a lot of smart motherfuckers all day long. Um, lots of uh, engineers, programmers, stuff like that, which I dabble in a little bit of all of that. But yeah, I, we still have some fucking idiots, man. But yeah, uh, Jimi Hendrix, huge, huge admirer of Jimi Hendrix, dude, because I... I'm a guitar player, and I have been since I was 14, and I'm 40 now. Uh, just an amazing man, an amazing guitar player, and he, oh man, he turned me on to so much other music that I would not have known before him, and for that, dude, I just, I love that fucking guy so much, and just his whole outlook and philosophy on life is so fucking awesome. And obviously, I hope you liked the Blackbeard episode as well. That was a fun episode because who doesn't love fucking who doesn't love pirates? You know what I'm saying, man? They didn't give a fuck, dude. But uh yeah, so Australia nothing new. Let's check Canada right quick. Uh nothing new in Canada either. So I think we are good on reviews, and I appreciate you guys sticking around to listen to them, for the ones who did at least. I fucking love you guys, and thank you for supporting me and listening. And like I always say, if you can't leave a review, that's totally fine, man. If you have a friend or somebody you know who likes a certain topic or a certain person or anything, like obviously I dabble into everything. Just be like, hey, man, have you heard this one episode? You know, check this out. Power of Suggestion is always awesome. And also, well, as we found out with the Lorancy Venom case, according to Henry Addington Bruce anyway, <laughs> Power of Suggestion is super. But um, no, all bullshit aside, now I appreciate everybody listening, and I'm glad you guys like the podcast still after over five years, five and a half years now. Crazy, crazy. But yeah. By the way, Sweetie Anna Project, Season 2 is getting ready to start up. Uh, we're going to be diving into some cases in a southern state. And we actually have the help of a private investigator and some law enforcement as well. That is going to be a great season for Sweetie Anna Project. Can't wait to dive into that. Strictly true crime, obviously. But, yeah, anyway, thanks for sticking around. Love you guys. Thank you all so much. And until next time, deuces. I'm out.